You've just tuned into Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Welcome back to Beyond Your Past. I'm your host, Matt Pappas, certified life coach specializing in overcoming anxiety and trauma recovery. And this podcast is all about helping you move forward from what holds you back. Each week, you'll hear from coaches, clinicians, and advocates who've overcome tremendous odds and are now using their journey to inspire you throughout yours. This is your place to feel validated and encouraged as you take your life back and live free from your past. Are you ready? Let's do this. Greetings, everyone. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your day to tune in, and I hope that each episode inspires and encourages you on your own journey. Special welcome if you're checking out the podcast for the first time. I definitely hope that you enjoy it and that you'll consider subscribing. And for those who are regular listeners, thanks so much. You guys rock. You're amazing, and I appreciate the support so very much. A big shout-out to my sponsors, inlpcenter.org, offering world-class online NLP and life coach training to people in over 70 countries and to Daily Recovery Support, interactive daily group calls in a safe atmosphere for survivors of complex trauma, equipping you with the skills and information that you can use every day in your own healing journey. Learn more and get signed up for this affordable resource at cptsdfoundation.org. And if you find these podcasts helpful and maybe even a little fun too, then please do consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with your friends. That would be amazing. So today I'm super stoked to welcome in Rob Goldstein to the podcast. Rob and I first connected when he shared his guest blog post over on Surviving My Past entitled Life with DID When Everything is a Trigger. It's really an incredible post and shows tremendous insight from Rob on his life with DID, so I definitely encourage you to check it out and I'll be sure and put the link in the show notes. He's an active blogger on his own website and also a photographer and digital artist. Rob joins me to talk about living with dissociative identity disorder, including the struggles and experience of not getting the proper diagnosis until later in life. He shares his experiences with therapy, virtual reality, art, relationships, and so much more. You'll hear me mention later on in the podcast that I was mesmerized by his insight and his vulnerability of sharing. Time just flew by chatting with Rob, and we're already working on bringing him back for a future chat. There's so much more I could tell you about it, but let's jump right into it so you can listen for yourself. So here we go with my chat with Rob Goldstein right now. So, hey, Rob, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing, man? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Um, And before we get started, um, again, thank you for coming on the show. And for those um, who aren't familiar with Rob, he wrote a a blog post um, on surviving my past quite a while back. So I'll be sure and link that in the show notes. But we're going to talk a little bit today about his diagnosis, living with DID, and specifically, we're going to jump into um, getting the diagnosis later in life and the, and the challenges that that comes with. So before we do that, though, Rob, go ahead and take a few minutes, let everybody know some more about you and anything else you'd like to share. Okay, well, um, my name is Rob Goldstein, and um, I've worked in mental health, um, as well as um, worked as a writer and um, an artist. Uh, I currently have a blog, uh, robertmgoldstein.com. It's called Art by Rob Goldstein. And um, I use it to talk about DID, to advocate for myself. The blog started actually in 2012 as a way for my alternates to communicate with my therapist. And uh, it's evolved since then because I've 
I've gotten healthier. Uh, I consider myself very lucky um, because I have a psychotherapist, and based on what I've read of the guidelines um, on the um, trauma and dissociation website, you know, the, the group that specializes in investigating or uh, doing research into trauma and dissociation, mm-hmm. um, the guidelines uh, there are really quite clear that one of the few treatments that does work for DID is psychotherapy, although um, DBT and other behavioral interventions are certainly helpful for managing feelings and distress. So I'm lucky. I consider myself lucky um, to have access to twice-a-week psychotherapy, which I've been doing um, since 2012, and it's worked. I'm, I'm much better. I'm much less fragmented than I was when I was first diagnosed. And um, um, so now the blog is beginning to consolidate. It's beginning to evolve into a new way of, um, how do I put it, of living. Because when I was diagnosed, I worked full time. I was a bit of a workaholic. Um, I managed a treatment facility in San Francisco. And we specialized in treating um, who were diagnosed, people who were diagnosed with borderline personality disorders and, and other um, trauma-related issues. So I was familiar with trauma, um, and I was familiar with psychotherapy, and I was familiar with providing those treatments. So when I was first diagnosed, it came as something uh, it was a shock for me. Uh, and and a thought full of disbelief. I I absolutely did not believe I had DID. So that's a bit of my history. I, in 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 uh, in 2012, life changed. It was a little bit, uh, and it was a very dark period um, because I absolutely had no idea of what was going on. I didn't understand my own mind. I didn't understand why I was behaving the way I was behaving, and I and I and and I didn't understand what people were telling me. I think the most Notable thing was my assistant director uh, at the facility that that I was the director of and looked at me one day and said, um, I don't know who you are, but, but you're not the guy I work for. And and that just, that just blew me away. I, I, I didn't know what to do with that. But I had enough presence of mind to to take myself to a psychiatrist and try to find out. And oddly enough, the diagnosis came from Kaiser Permanente, which is actually not known for providing the best mental health treatment in the world. So it's been a long journey um, since 2012. I always find it so interesting how we just change and adapt and learn and evolve from the time we get a diagnosis over the years and the way that our life looks initially versus the way it looked before versus the way it looks now. It's just, it's incredible how when we get the right help and we find the right Right. treatment, uh, you know, facilities and support systems and resources, like everything just really, really starts to click and make sense. And I know for me, when I was first started going through my recovery and, and learning about what it meant to be a survivor of trauma and learning what anxiety really was doing and learning um, about dissociation and all these different types of things, stuff that some of which I'd never even heard of before when I started right. learning. And yeah. And so, but when I started to, to get, you know, working with a professional who knew about this type of thing and was able to explain it in a way that I could understand it, like it was, 
it was life changing and I, it really helped kind of catapult me and motivate me to learn more and to continue healing. And so kind of along that front, uh, you know, we were talking just before we started uh, recording was that, um, you know, for many of the guests that I have on this show, be it, you know, trauma survivors, people who live with DID or other types of disorders for any number of reasons, um, many times they start to seek out help and get a diagnosis, perhaps in their 20s or 30s, depending on the situation. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a unique set of challenges, I believe, and maybe you can speak to this more of getting the diagnosis like later on in life and perhaps like, you know, your fifties or late forties and the challenges that come with that, because you've kind of lived a certain way and done a certain thing for decades. And now all of a sudden you start to get help and you start to change. The interesting thing for me is the discovery that I have adult alternates and um, I've often, this is, and, and, and the ability to connect certain ways of thinking that I now understand are peculiar to BID. For instance, the idea that I had in my 20s that if I move from one part of the country to the other and take a name based on my actual name, um, let's say Robert rather than Rob, um, that somehow everything about the past vanishes. This was something that, that I used to think when I was in my 20s and 30s. I would move to a city, and it was as if everything that happened before my arrival in that city and taking up a life in that city, everything that happened before vanished. So I would be able, I would know, I knew a bit about what I was, who I was, what I did prior, let's say, to I lived in... New Haven. I moved to Honolulu. I knew what I, I knew that I had lived in New Haven, but in Honolulu, if you had asked me what I had done in New Haven, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you very much about it. So that was something I thought everybody did. That's the thing about being sort of stuck in your own head and, and having an illness that you don't talk about or understand, or even though you have, is that you think that the way you think is the way everybody else thinks. Because why wouldn't everybody else be as normal as you are? So, so for me, a lot of the stuff that came with having BID, all of the signs that, that might have tipped me off went ignored because I thought they were all normal. I thought everybody forgot what they did during the past week of their lives. I just thought everybody did. And so um, I did know, and when I moved to San Francisco in the 1980s, I moved um, from Honolulu to San Francisco. Um, and again, I, and then that's when I took the name Rob. Prior to that, I had called myself Bob. And in San Francisco, um, I became a writer and I noticed in my writing that I had all of these characters that I wrote in. And everybody said, the people around me said, wow, this is amazing. You really get into these characters. These characters are so real. They're so vivid. And, um, and so I began to perform the characters. And for a period of time, I was living and working as a performance artist in San Francisco, um, writing my own work. And that was during the 
AIDS epidemic, which was also extremely stressful and extremely traumatic. And so I was already suffering trauma symptoms, severe trauma symptoms that I didn't know about. And in the middle of an epidemic that was literally killing everyone around me, and which, of course, was extremely frightening. And so I became more fragmented and more traumatized. And when the epidemic ended, I um, converted to Catholicism and became Matthew. And again, I had an adult alternate. If you had asked me what I had done in the 80s, I, I could tell you that, well, I survived the AIDS epidemic and uh, then I converted to Catholicism and became Matthew and, and now I work in mental health. But what I would not have been able to tell you is anything about how it felt effectively, emotionally. Um, and, and I was doing fine. I met a partner and for about 15 years, actually, I worked, I was stable. I mean, I had moments that I was stable. Um, something triggered the more serious symptoms. And one of the things I noticed was that I think what brought me to the doctor was I had discovered virtual reality. I had discovered avatars. And I noticed that the characters I was writing in the 1980s re-emerged and began to log into virtual reality to try to have their own lives. And I, I could not understand what that was about. And that is when I began to seek out a psychiatrist. Even though I worked in mental health, I never discussed my own mental health issues. No one saw the fragmentation, people commented that I often seemed spacey or that I seemed changeable, but no one noticed that I had DID. And in fact, in all of the years prior to the diagnosis, I went to doctors, psychiatrist after psychiatrist, was usually diagnosed as bipolar and treatment resistant. Um, which is a symptom of DID, by the way, treatment-resistant bipolar illness. And, um, but nothing changed. It wasn't until I got the diagnosis that I began to start to actually get better. So it, it was interesting. I mean, why, I, I, the thing that, that ultimately broke me down and made it impossible for me to work was that my alternates, the alternates that used DID, were spending all of the body's time logging into um, virtual reality to have their own lives. And, of course, the people in VR were perfectly willing to believe that. For them, they were playing a game. They were dissociating by choice. They were dissociating for amusement they didn't understand that I was doing it pathologically and that the characters they were talking to believed they were real. So that was how I wound up seeing the psychiatrist. And the, and the first thing I said to the doctor when I walked in, because I was also a professional in the field, I said, well, something is going on with me, but I know it's not DID. <laughs> so, and that was the start of this. And it was six months later that he, did, he diagnosed me with it after seeing me for six months. 
That's so interesting that the first thing you said was something's wrong with me, but it's not DID. Like, mm-hmm. what was what was the expression on his face? I mean, was it just kind of like, okay, that's fine, or, or oh, I yeah. guess maybe okay, like, yeah, how did that go? <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, he just looked at me and he said, okay, that's fine. And we began to talk, and I told him some of my history, and um, what he noticed, I, I later found out, was that every time I came to an appointment, when I did arrive at an appointment, I often didn't remember the previous appointment. Um, I often behaved in ways that were unusual from the last time I was there. And eventually, um, he referred me to a woman who specialized in the treatment of, of DID, um, my therapist. She works out of New York and San Francisco. And it took me almost a year after his recommendation. Um, it took me almost a year for me to finally call her and make an appointment because I just simply didn't want to deal with the possibility that I had something so strange. And the more I read about DID, the more I realized that DID was associated with sexual trauma, usually sexual trauma and, and, and physical abuse that takes place before the age of that whatever caused this thing had to have happened when I was very young. And, and that's a kind of betrayal that's really hard to come to terms with. You, you have to come to terms with a lot of things, but perhaps the most difficult um, aspect of DID is that if you're going to get better, you have to come to terms with the fact that the people who were supposed to have protected you and, and in fact made it possible for you to have a future did the exact opposite. And so that was a really, that was a very, that was very hard for me to, to, to want to look at because I had made in my mind, I had put all of this behind me. I had put all of that aside and, and bear in mind, I was in my late fifties and I thought, oh my God, here I am. I'm in my late fifties. And now I have to deal with all of these things that happened to me before I was four if I'm to have anything like um, satisfaction in my life, because what, what are you looking for uh, in your late fifties? Um, you know, you're looking for a consolidation of who you are. You're looking for a, um, you're looking for your legacy. And, you know, so what I'm hearing is my legacy is this confusion, this um, fragmented sort of narrative that I can't make sense of because every period of my life is somehow cut off from every other period of my life. And so um, it, 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 it kind of tore me up a bit. And, of course, because I was also um, living in a system that replicated, and I didn't know this at all, uh, that I, I had spent a lot of my life also replicating the abusive dynamic that I thought was normal. I thought it was normal for me to simply just allow people to walk all over my boundaries. I thought it was normal for, for, for people to gaslight me. I thought it was normal for people to lie to me or to break their promises. I thought all of those things were normal things. And so I also had to come to terms with the fact that I'd never really had a healthy relationship because I thought that the pathological behaviors of my parents were the normal behaviors 
that 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 everyone engaged in. So that was another that was another um, almost a Herculean task. How am I at the age in my late fifties? I now have to also change the way I am. I need to start setting limits. I need to bring people who are healthy into my life. I need to. I need to have quality relationships in my life. And, and this is not to say that all of my relationships were were somehow pathological because I did meet someone who who you know certainly he has his problems but he's he he's not an abusive gaslighting narcissist. <laughs> so um you know it was not as if I didn't have good relationships. It was that I I had more often than not, unhealthy relationships, primarily with women, because it was a woman who was my abuser. So that was the beginning. That was in 2012. That was all in 2012, late 2012, early 2013, when um, I was diagnosed and finally started treatment. This is just uh, fascinating. And of course, we're talking with Rob Goldstein here. We're talking about his life with DID, the diagnosis, how things have changed. Um, and one of the things that, that I wanted to kind of go back to, cause this is something that I struggled with. I think a lot of survivors struggle with is when you get the diagnosis that is finally true mm-hmm. and you start to be able to put the pieces together and, and everything makes sense. And of course there's a lot of, um, traumatic things that you have to work through and, and a lot of in, in regards to your past and the way that you've been living, but you mm-hmm. mentioned several times and I've gone through too is realizing that the normal that you knew um, right. wasn't necessarily, and, and I, I struggle with to use the word normal because, you know, it, it can be quite invalidating and it can be confusing and mm-hmm. it makes us sometimes feel like we're not normal because normal is, is such a generic word, but in our own life, the things that we do, we feel like everybody does because that's all we've ever known. So we think everybody, you know, um, experiences life the way that we do and we forget things and all the, all, all the things that you mentioned and stuff that I've gone through. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting to talk more about just how you realize that the normal of your life um, was really something that, you know, wasn't what the general public for lack of a better term generally goes through or understands. And that, now you're realizing that the things that you did were because of trauma and that there are, um, you know, forces at work with, with your alters who are presenting themselves in ways that you never understood because you didn't even know what an alter was at a time. And so now you're learning that I have a whole new normal and that I can change some things and I can learn to adapt some things. So um, maybe like if you want to talk a little bit more about just how you kind of formed this new and again, here we go with the word normal again, but it's only word I can think of off the top of my head of, of working through, you know, not only the therapy appointments, but adapting your life and changing things that you could change and kind of accepting things that maybe you couldn't change. Just kind of how life has been different, right. you know, you know well, since everything. One thing that I have in my, I mean, there are several things that I, several, several gifts, I guess, come with, come with DID, if you, if you, if you will. Um, I have, my alternates are all very studious. They're all into the acquisition of knowledge. Um, Some of my alternates knew they had DID. In fact, um, I have an adolescent alternate um, 
And it was the adolescent alternate who um, first went into virtual reality with the idea of trying to find a way to reparent himself so that he could be normal. And what I'm going to use instead of normal, I'm going to use the word healthy and pathological because there, we, there is, we are either healthy or pathological at any given time, given what we know about ourselves and, and given how we were raised to react to different circumstances. So, for instance, uh, we can argue that there are certain elements about our time in general, this period in history. We can argue that this is a pathological period in history because it seems... It appears dominated by an unhealthy narcissism. Um, we've had less pathological moments in history, and so that's how I think about my life. I have had um, pathological, pathological behaviors. A pathological behavior is a behavior that is self-destructive, essentially. It's a behavior that causes unhappiness for you. Um, it's a behavior that um, it disrupts your, your relationships. Um, these are some of the behaviors that I thought were normal. Um, or a pathological relationship in which one person is in complete control and uses money or psychological dependence as a way of, um, in abusive ways. So I trust you because I think you are going to be good to me and healing for me um, and you give me some of that, but um, you also give me toxic, um, you gaslight me, let's say. You lie to me. Well, if you're lying to me and, I'm, and I know you're lying to me, but I am unable to assert my right to be um, to, 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 to the truth or I assert my right to, to be treated as an adult and to be treated honestly, and your response is then to accuse me of being a liar. In the past, I might have gone silent and just simply accepted it. Now, what I would do is I would say, I'm sorry, but I simply cannot be friends with someone who lies to me. So I can now look at somebody. I can look at someone. I can say directly to someone who's lying to me, Please stop lying to me. If you don't stop lying to me, then I will have to assume that you're incapable of telling me the truth, and I will have to stop being your friend because that's not healthy for me. So that's a huge difference in my life because prior to the diagnosis, even, even um, in my 50s, I was far more passive about my boundaries and far more passive about my right to be treated as an adult who deserves to be um, spoken to with honesty. I didn't know I had that right, and now I do. And just as I didn't understand the functions of my alternates, why they came out, what their purpose was. You know, at first I felt a great deal of shame. Now it's, it's 2018, and um, I understand that my alternate helped me to survive, that the alternate named Rob got me through 
one of the darkest periods of my adult life. I can't think of a period more stressful, more painful than the 1980s when I was living in San Francisco and watching the majority of the people around me dying from this disease that seemed to come out of nowhere. It was horrible. It was miserable. And to some extent, I'm glad I don't have all of my memories of it. But I do know that the alternate that got me through it um, kept me alive. It kept me alive. So um, I, to some extent, I'm grateful because I might not be here if I had not had DID. And so to that extent, DID is a gift. If you can make it to the point in your life where you can begin to heal and consolidate, then DID has been a gift to you. Even if, even through all of the pain and suffering. That's such an incredible way to look at it. And I think, you know, a lot of times when we're in the midst of healing or the midst of working with a therapist or in the midst of trying to get a diagnosis or we're trying to figure out exactly, you know, what in the world's going on with our life, we don't always see things as a gift. You know, I know so often we think of it as a curse or it's something we got to deal with or something that nobody understands and it affects us in so many horrible ways. But, you know, it's interesting how you say that it's a gift because when I learned how much dissociation saved my life when I was experiencing mm-hmm. the childhood trauma between five and 10, like, you know, like, like I said before, I didn't, I didn't know what dissociation even was until I started seeking, you know, the help of a therapist and figuring all this stuff out. But to me, I mean, even though, like, even though dissociation can be a struggle right now in, in adulthood, when I'm no longer in the traumatizing circumstance with the after effects of that obviously are still with me. So dissociation now as an adult can be a bit of a pain, um, but, or, you know, a struggle to deal with, but at the time it saved me. It was something that, you know, kept me alive. Literally, you know, my mind did not allow me to be fully present during the acts of those abuse because it knew that, you know, I might not survive it or so it, it was a gift. And I think that's a great way to look at it is, and it's something that I really try to embrace. And I want to get to your artwork here for just a couple of minutes uh, before we wrap this up. But I want to just really let, you know, kind of reinforce this point that, um, you know, whether you live with DID or any, any dissociative disorder or anything else, when you can, if you can get to a point of it, realizing how much it saved you and how much it may have helped mm-hmm. you, or at least been some sort of a comfort for you or a help, like that's an incredible realization to be able right. to understand that and to and to take something that we think is so traumatic and confusing and infuriating and, and frustrating and like, wow, this this might have saved me. I might not be the person I am today or even here at all if this right. hadn't happened, right? Right. Yeah. yeah I, in my last therapy session, I told my therapist that I, I believe I have a quantum mind. And, um, and that's now how I see my, my – that's how I see the DID. Uh, it's a quantum mind, um, and and at this point in my treatment, I'm also much more aware than others. I'm much better able. I'm better able to communicate with them, and and it's. I suppose that the the real trick here is they exist but don't exist. Meaning, <clears throat> uh, my brain has little. My brain has little places on it where neural networks where each of these little critters <laughs> lives and um, 
And while they may not be separate people, they they are. They're not, but they are. They are me, but not me. Um, that's the part of dissociation that is kind of a little weird and kind of hard to, it's hard to live. I, I believe in, 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 in DBT it's called living with the ambiguity, living with the dichotomy. And so that's the dichotomy. They exist. They are me, but not me. Um, which is how I experience them internally. So I have no choice but to live with my own internal experience of my life. They're part of me. Their histories are my history. Um, And so now it's kind of the task is to, to accept their histories, to accept the pain that they went through, and to incorporate it into my understanding of my life so that their narrative eventually syncs up with my narrative and it all becomes one narrative. Because as it stands now, it's still very much separate narratives. And, um, and so my goal is to be able to bring these narratives together so that I can write a memoir and, and make it about me because I, I can't write this memoir if it's about me as a dozen different people. Um, I have to find a way to bring all of it together and make and, and make it a whole. Now that may never happen. That may never happen, and that's fine. I, I took I wrote a little note to myself before this, and and the note was I no longer think of myself as sick with the DID. I'm beginning to think of myself as well with DID. So. I love it. It's incredible. I am well with DID. I think that's great. It's an amazing way to look at the situations and life that you've gone through, how you've been able to adapt and overcome and come to a greater understanding of yourself, be able mm-hmm. to enforce more healthy boundaries, get involved in healthier relationships see the red flags for relationships that are not healthy and be able to put up those boundaries and take a step back. And I, um, I think we can all be encouraged by it. And uh, one other thing I wanted to cover quickly um, is just to share some, maybe um, a bit of your artwork. If you go to your website, which is robertmgoldstein.com, which will be in the show notes, as I said, uh, there's information there. There's your, uh, you know, there, there's an about me section. There's your blog posts. Then there's also the digital art and uh, uh, photography mm-hmm. section. So maybe if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how art is helping you or what it means to you to be able to use yeah. this kind of modality. And well, you know, I started writing when I was um, I first started writing when I was eight years old. So writing has been something I've done all of my life. And 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 in fact, shortly after I think perhaps six months into my therapy. I began to find hidden boxes. It's a, I, it's, it was a weird experience. You know, when I mean hidden, I mean hidden in the open. I don't know if you've ever had this, if you have this experience, but I can see objects but not see them. So if it's an object that an alternate didn't want me to see, for instance, like a huge crate full of um, writing, <laughs> then really the box could could be in the same room with me for years and I wouldn't open it, I wouldn't notice it, I would walk around it. And I think that may have something to do with not feeling a lack of ownership, but it, it is another kind of interesting trick of the mind. 
where if you're not supposed to see something, if an alternate that's a protector doesn't want you to see something because you're being protected from the information, then you simply will not see it. And so in my therapy, I began to find, um, I began to find boxes of writing, writing I didn't recognize, writing in dialect, writing, it was just, it's, it's three crates full of writing. And so eventually I began to look at some of this work and I began to revise some of this work. And, um, and as I said, I started the blog um, as a way of letting the alternates communicate with, their, um, with my therapist. One of the ways I started to also understand the, what I call the digital dolls, the avatars of virtual reality, um, was that I was also telling my therapist stories in much the way that a child would tell a story using dolls. These digital dolls were like the dolls that you might give a kid who had been molested in order to, you know, have them tell you with the dolls what happened. And so that's really what was going on. Um, at this point, what's going on is that I'm, I'm collaborating. I, I started a collaborator, collaboration with a writer. Um, she's very witty. She's really, really smart. And the alternates began to, began to collaborate with her around creating the characters. And so the alternates that do go into VR started going into VR and taking on the roles of the characters in her story, Hullabaloo, that's the name of the story, on Tegan's books. And so what's fascinating for me is that they can go into VR and switch off consciousness, set up scenes, take turns taking photographs of the illustrations that we're working on, get into costume, um, in fact, design some of the sets, make some of the props, and, and, spend, um, as, and spend four hours with each other collaborating as one on, um, on illustrating a section of this story. It's a, it's a brand new experience for me. I, I think when I first told you about it, I told you I was very excited because it, it's like, for me, it's like going to sleep, except that I'm aware. I'm not in charge of what's going on, but I'm aware of what's going on, and I can watch them work with each other to make these photographs. And so the photographs that, that people see in the illustrations, the videos that, that we make in order to um, help her to promote Hullabaloo, while I know that they were made by me, I don't feel a direct ownership. My pride in them is the pride in, uh, I'm taking pride in those parts of me that have learned how to use VR in a way that's healthy so that they can find satisfaction, uh, find creative satisfaction. Now, understand why that's important. When I first went into VR, when we were first going into VR, VR was destructive to my life because I was no longer able to work, because all of my, my time was spent switching from one alternate to the other. And each alternate had its own friends and its own relationships. 
very destructive to my life. The fact that the people I was interacting with were gamers who had no clue and really had no reason to have a clue um, wasn't helpful because they didn't know what was going on with me. And in a gaming environment, everyone and everything is fair game. So it took a while for me to learn how to use VR, the VR platform, in a way that was healthy. Uh, I, I was, um, I had to withdraw completely from any interaction with the other gamers because that um, would always lead, that inevitably led to the repetition cycle kicking in. It, what was shocking to me was that even online, the repetition cycle, the cycle of meeting people who suffer from the same personality flaws as my primary abuser, that, that little rule was still in effect. And it was surprising for me to realize that, that, the, that the mind can be that powerful. That even if I'm not seeing the people directly, because I'm trained to look for the narcissist who will abuse me, that is what I find. And so learning how to, learning first that that's what's going to happen if I'm not careful and putting safety measures into place so that I can use um, really uh, an important platform um, in a way that benefits my life was an extremely important thing to do. Um, and it did take a while. And I think a lot of people might have given up and said, you know what, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to use VR anymore because, um, because it makes me crazy. Well, the other solution to that is to use it in a way that doesn't make you crazy and to use it in a way that allows you to use your own craziness creatively. I mean, because to be crazy is not necessarily to be insane. To, to be different is not necessarily to be abnormal. I mean, we know this. So how do you, how do you make um, alternates that want to have their own lives, who, who perceive digital bodies as their own, how do you make them work for you? And how do you allow them to have some sense of themselves as valid because we have to validate our alternates. We have to, we have to welcome our, our alternates and allow them room to breathe and grow. That's how they will eventually become part of the whole. So that was a huge, that was a huge hurdle for me. And when I realized I was doing it, um, I got very excited. I got very excited uh, because I kept saying to my therapist, I kept insisting that there must be a way of using this kind of technology um, without having it make me sick. And so the fact that I was able to find a way to do that um, just really thrilled me. And I know that was rambling. <laughs> oh, no, it's all great. It was, it was perfect. It's such a great way to end the show is just to listen and, and to learn. And I'm following along and I'm, I'm just kind of mesmerized by what you're sharing and how, how the evolution of your healing and using VR and how at once, you know, 
at one point it was something that was literally, you know, so almost toxic for you. And now you've learned to use it to your advantage and it's helping you. It's helping you reach out to others to be in this new collaborative opportunity. I think it's just amazing. I would love to to bring you back again at some point if you're interested to share more well, about it. I would, I would you know? love to do that. I, I would love to do that. I mean, one, one of the things that I, I want to really tell people is don't be afraid of your DID. Don't be afraid of looking for collateral. One of the things that um, really helped me was bringing it up to my oldest friends. I'm talking about people, finding people I knew when I was a teenager and hearing from them um, the things that they noticed. And, and to my surprise, what I've discovered is that almost everyone at every juncture in my life saw the DID but didn't know what they were looking at. So they saw it. They could describe it to me. I could understand it as DID after I knew it. Um, but they didn't. They, they saw it. They didn't know what they were looking at. So if, if people have friends, you know, contacts with people they knew in their lives, um, people who, who might have known them 30 or 40 years ago, you may find that the people that you interacted with, the people who were your friends, saw what was going on, didn't understand it, but can describe it to you. And this is actually hugely helpful. This is helpful. Because this gives you a sense of the history of it. This lets you know that you're not imagining it, your doctor's not imagining it, because, because many people simply don't, including mental health professionals, don't want to believe DID exists. And one of the reasons for that is that DID contradicts the strictly behavioral model that we now call psychiatry. So DID says we have a mind. And not only do we have a mind, we have a mind capable of creating multiple minds. Behaviorism says we're behaviors. And, 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 and both are true. Behavioral um, therapies really do help people to deal with the distress of coming to terms with DID. Psychotherapy will help you learn how to manage your mind. Incredible. So well said, Rob. Thank you so much for just your insight, for your wisdom, for sharing your story. I know it's going to help so many people. Um, I have many listeners who who live with DID or have family members or friends. And I think this is just going to be, it, it's going to offer new insight to just your journey and to getting the, the, the diagnosis later in life and how art has helped you and blogging and reaching out into new opportunities. So I'm so glad that you were here. Why don't we wrap it up? You can tell everybody again where to find you on social media, find your blog sure. and all that good stuff. Okay, so my um, blog is robertmgoldstein.com or art by Rob Goldstein. And um, on that blog, if you go to the contact page, you'll see my Twitter feed and my Flickr feed and all of that. Thanks for listening to Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Information shared on this podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for or supersedes professional medical help or mental health counseling. Thank you again to my sponsors, INLPcenter.org and Daily Recovery Support. I hope you'll consider checking them out as they've joined forces to help keep the lights on here at the podcast and help Beyond Your Past reach as many as possible with a message of hope. 
If you'd like to learn more about working with me as your coach, or if you're curious about what life coaching is and how it might be right for you, then head on over to beyondyourpast.com and claim your free one-hour session where we can talk about the struggles in your life in the areas of anxiety and trauma recovery and see if coaching might be a great fit for you. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and share it with all your friends. See you next time.